Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Catherine Edmonds and Sarah Westmoreland. We're glad to have the two of you with us today, and Catherine, would you tell us a little bit about how you and Sarah know one another? Okay, so we moved back to Augusta in 2012, and I don't remember exactly when Sarah and I met, but I know that we have bonded over the past several years because our youngest sons are friends. And so they went to Mother's Day out together, and now they're in school together and have played sports together. So that's kind of been what's brought our families together. And I wanted to say one thing I appreciate about Sarah is that she initiates to me. (laughs) Um, She always asks me to walk. Um, Sometimes I have to say no because she walks way faster than I do. (laughs) But no, she's a very thoughtful friend and um, likes to include me in things and invite me to do things. And I really appreciate that. Well, can I say something about Catherine real you quick? You can. Fair game. Yeah. So my, all my children are um, younger than Catherine's. So she's a little further down the line with her two boys. And I feel like navigating these teenage years, she's such a great resource for me to run to and be like, is this normal? And she and Josh are always just so great to give us this very sage advice. Um, we had a Chinese student several years ago and we hadn't done the teenage years yet. And so I would have to ask Catherine, I'm like, is this a Chinese thing or is this a teenage boy thing? <laughs> and she was helping me like differentiate which was which. And most of the time it's just just teenage boy stuff and I was like oh this is what I'm in for so I, need I appreciate to her wisdom yes we need a blog we could probably give you a list of what not to do yeah. so. I'll accept that too yeah that's usually how it goes don't do this and maybe try this but we can't give you any guarantees y'all have a sweet friendship it is fun to have a friend that initiates and one who's a little ahead of you in life stage yes. that can um, encourage you along the way and your two boys make a dynamic duo <laughs> together energetic and fun and um, all those things so all right well let's do our first things first question for today so you're going to answer the question and then you're also going to give us a short bio on yourselves so the question is when was the first time you cut class and Sarah kick us off so the first time I remember being asked to cut class I think I was in ninth grade and a boy asked me if I would skip school, said he'd come get me. And I just thought my parents would, act, I would I'd be grounded for the rest of my life. My parents would kill me. So I said no. And it turns out that was a great red flag. I probably should not have been hanging out with that boy anyway. But um, the first time I actually cut class, our high school had in the handbook, I don't know if it's an error or an oversight, but your senior year, you had unlimited skip days, basically. And once I figured out that and figured out, hey, this is actually like legal, I think I missed over like 20 days the second half of my senior year. Very self-controlled of you. Yeah. I think at that point I was just over high school and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get in trouble for this. Like it's actually in the handbook. And so (laughs) senior year. But only 20. That's just some restraint. 20 something. I can't remember the number, but I know my French teacher got really annoyed with me about it, but I kept my grades up. So really like they couldn't say much about it. So that was my first time skipping school. And so I am Sarah and I'm married to Palmer. For those who go to First Pres, like we were kind of a uh, MCO love story. Um, So he was, went to dental school here. I went to PT school here. So we met at some of the MCO functions. I went on my first mission trip and started kind of hanging out at the Chafee house, which he was one of the original Chafee boys, if 
MC, people know what MCO is. MCO stands for Medical Campus Outreach. Yes, yes. It's a ministry of our church to um, medical students and dental and PT. And so um, anyway, we started hanging out and eventually got married. So we hit 20 years this year. So we're, wow. that's, yeah, a big landmark. We have three boys. They're 16, 13, and 10. And I just realized we're all like three boy families. So oh, that was wow. really fun. And I'm a physical therapist. I work at the Children's Hospital. So I get to work with kids, which is super fun. And I really love it. And then I'm really involved in my boys' school. I'm doing all the extracurriculars and I'm a part-time Uber driver for my boys, basically, <laughs> but I'm unpaid for that. Oh, boy. Yeah. But yeah, that's all about me. So cutting class. I did not cut class in high school. I was very much a rule follower. I'm sure I cut class many, many times in college, but I don't really remember the first time I cut class, but I do rem- I have a memorable time that I cut class. So that's what I was going to share. So when I was in nursing school, and this was like five or six years ago, it was a lot of studying, drinking from a fire hydrant. We did four semesters in a row straight through. So summer semester was very tough. We had really tough classes. And I had the opportunity to go to the beach for a few days. (laughs) And normally I would say no to that. But it wasn't something I had planned in advance, but it was kind of a spur of the moment. And I, I cut class and cut clinical and went to the beach and it was very refreshing. So that was a good decision. (laughs) You came back and picked up where you left off. Yes. So I'm Catherine. I'm married to Josh. Uh, We met out of college. We were both involved with Campus Outreach. And we have been married 25 years. And we have four children. Our oldest is 23. So we have 23-year-old, 21-year-old, a 19-year-old, and an 11-year-old. A little bit of space on the caboose. A little bit of space on the caboose, yes. And I work as a nurse. And yep, that's about me. Well, Sarah, I did not resist the temptation in ninth grade. I definitely... Oh, you did it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Miss <laughs> Manning, if you're out there. I'm really sorry. I skip biology all the time. It was not the best version of me. We were... A friend of mine, we were in a uh, like a media productions class together. And you could say like, oh, we got to go work on this project. Because it wasn't like really a class. It was just like a special, I don't know, of an extracurricular or something. And so we would be like, oh, we got to go work on the daily news or whatever. And we would just leave biology class. It's like... Gregor Mendel and Punnett Squares again, like, see you later. We've done this. Like, I've got to go do this other thing and just skip so much biology (laughs) class. But I think it was like, oh, if you can still make a good grade, then it's probably fine. But I don't know. Now I feel bad as having been on the teaching side. It's like, oh, so disrespectful not to go. So sorry, Miss Manning. (laughs) And if your children ever get caught skipping school, I'm going to tell them your mama did the same thing. You know, it drives my mom nuts. She was a teacher for a long time. And if my kids are ever like, um, you know, I feel like I just really need to have a mom day today. I'm like, okay. And my mom is like, what are you doing? You can't just give mom days that is not written in the handbook. Apparently right? not. Which school do you go to? There are no we added a page. Skip days. That's funny. Well, I'm with you, Catherine. I guess we're going to be two and two is I did not skip school in high school either. And maybe it's partially because it was a small little town and a fairly small high school. Where are you going to go? It's nowhere that exciting to go. But in college... <laughs> I did get to give in to that urge to sleep in and skip that early morning class and, and make up for it later. But I did find that even though I let myself sleep in, I just didn't sleep that well. Like there was something about knowing I was supposed to be somewhere and I wasn't there and I should be there. That it was like this guilty pleasure that actually robbed me of the pleasure of sleeping in. So I don't know. I didn't skip a whole lot of class. But uh, when I did, I always felt like I was missing something important. Like it was an important hour to be there. 
but that hour of class was not nearly as important as the hour that we're going to be talking about today. Because in John chapter 12, Jesus begins to speak of an hour to which the whole gospel of John has been building. Now, if you haven't read John chapter 12, I do invite you to hit the pause button and do it now because you will get more out of our conversation if you do. Now, coming to John 12, we're coming to an important turning point in John's gospel. Chapter 12 is moving us into Jesus's final week. And John spends nearly half of his gospel on this week. And he is unique from other gospel writers in that the details he chooses to record focus on Jesus's personal interactions during this last week rather than his public ones. And we're coming to one such example of that type of personal interaction here at the beginning of chapter 12. And we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 11, which highlight what our Come and See study calls an unusual extravagant act of devotion. But before we get into that particular part of the passage, a little bit of context. We are coming from chapter 11, and in chapter 11, we have the raising, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is the last of the miraculous signs that John records in his gospel, and it is a powerful foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and resurrection and the reason for the extravagant act of devotion that we're going to talk about today. Now, this extravagant act of devotion is one that is now widely acknowledged as incredibly beautiful and important. But at the moment it was performed, the one performing it was strongly criticized. And what I love is that Jesus himself silences the critics. And we see in Matthew's gospel account of the same interaction that Jesus makes it plain that what has been done, this devotion, has been done in preparation for his own burial, Jesus' burial. And it's so valuable that it will be remembered forever, wherever the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is proclaimed. So this extravagant act of devotion that will be remembered forever is Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet. And we see from the rest of chapter 12 that it is ushering in a crucial hour. Coming is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, the hour that will bring both death and life, the hour for which Jesus has come with set purpose and a troubled soul. It's a soul-wrenching and wonderful hour, and it's one for which Mary had the privilege of preparing Jesus. So, Aaron, tell us a little bit more about the historical context of this act itself, where Mary was, what was going on, what you would have seen had you been there. So, as you read through the scripture, you'll see that they're just outside of Bethany, so a little bit, you know, like almost what we might call a suburb. So, a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. Obviously, the city is swelling during Passover, so you've got all these people. The This text tells us that there are Jews and Greeks coming into the city to celebrate Passover or else to find out like who is Jesus what's this guy about like we want to know like words around town yeah a lot of words particularly because the word's gotten out that he's raised Lazarus from the dead there's mm-hmm. a lot of chatter oh, yeah. about oh, that yeah. mm-hmm. and I love that early in this um, chapter I mean we're coming off of Lazarus being raised from the dead so you have that playing in the background like in chapter 11 so Lazarus called forth from the tomb, Jesus being prepared for the tomb, like the literary work of art that John Mm -hmm. is stringing together here is strong. And then he's setting the scene in Passover. And I think when I was reflecting on this, N.T. Wright has helped me understand a little bit more about Holy Week and the scene of Passover, why that's important. Like that wasn't like an arbitrary thing. And so I think 
as modern Westerners, a lot of time we'll think of Jesus at the cross more through a lens of the Day of Atonement. So we're looking for a clean slate. We're looking for purification. We're looking for a scapegoat. And um, his his right has been or his writings have been very corrective to me to help me see like no, it's actually set during the Passover for a reason that. This is the time of the the Hebrew people were remembering their deliverance from Egypt. They are looking to be delivered from the oppression, oppression of Pharaoh, but obviously they're being delivered unto the Lord to worship him freely. And this is, Jesus is teeing this up. Like, I have come, I am here on earth with you. As John's already told us in chapter one, that he is God's fullness. He is his perfect image. He is here as the deliverer. And I think when we start seeing the um, Holy Week and the crucifixion through that Passover lens, it shakes things up, at least for me. Like we see that there is a uh, delivery of not just the Jewish people, but of all nations. Like we're all being freed up from the slavery of sin to worship God freely as we were intended to. So that's just very helpful for me as one one historical point. My, my closing thought on that would be that it's the end of exile. Like Jesus is coming saying, I freed you from the, the pagan oppression, I freed you from idolatry. It's the end of exile. You now have a way out. Everybody, not just the Hebrew people. This is not just for the Israel nation. That This is for the world to be free. You're free to worship me as I've intended. And at the cross, this is made real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as you're saying that, part of my daily Bible reading right now is in Exodus. And I'm always reminded when I get to that passage of just how much, just to see the institution of Passover, the mm-hmm. very beginning of that is always instructive to me when I come to it in other places in Scripture. But just what you're saying, you're not just being delivered out in a way, but you're d- being delivered for and to, mm-hmm. you know, you are being delivered from bondage, but you're being delivered so that you can enter into worship right. um, of the living God. And so, yeah, I love that. Well, and I think, too, just even if you think, like, I'm not just being delivered to so I can, quote, go to heaven or... Even if we think of like for we're waiting for the new creation that, you know, Christ's return is going to reinstate the new heavens and the new earth. It's like we're not just saved for that. We are saved to worship. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that just this Passover week mm-hmm. and this Mary passage, it's yeah. just like that stirring extravagance. Like this is how our hearts we I think especially with us even entering this Easter season that we too should be stirred to worship when we read something like this. All right, so there's a lot of interesting content here that we see interesting characters. We see, like Amber was saying, like this is, we're headed to the climax of John. So talk about what in particular surprised or interested you in this passage. You want to start us off, Catherine? Yes. Um, So I was really surprised and interested by Mary's just spiritual insight that she, you know, she's the one that that would, doesn't have a lot of words recorded, you know, of her in scripture. We hear a lot of Martha's words. We don't hear a lot of Mary's words. And she doesn't say anything in this passage either. But the fact that she feels comfortable enough to come into Christ's presence and in this way to touch his feet, to do what even a Jewish servant wouldn't do. Only a Gentile servant would wash the feet. And she does it with her hair. And the the fact that she knows that she can come and let her hair down and not be judged mm-hmm. by Jesus. Now, I'm sure that there may have been some judgmental thoughts in that room. I mean, obviously, Judas does express his judgmental thoughts, but I'm sure there were more. But Jesus welcomes her. Um, and in that vulnerability of, I know that 
I mean, this is somebody who loves me and I can come into his presence. I can be vulnerable. I can, you know, be who I really am. And I'm not going to be judged by that. That's super helpful to think about how her cultural identity is trumped by Jesus, who who she's right. known as by Jesus. Yeah, and I think this passage is just another way that Jesus is just erasing the divisions of class, mm-hmm. gender, mm-hmm. social norms. Her humility is also something else that struck me and just the love that she has just seen him raise her brother from the dead. And we know that he loved them. And and he chooses to spend this time to come back and spend this evening with these people whom he loves. And so her bringing that gift, it shows the worthiness of Christ. And I heard a sermon um, many years ago, it was an admissions conference, where they were comparing this passage to what happened when Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were martyred. And when, so of course, I believe that was the 50s. So word didn't travel as quickly. News didn't travel as quickly as it does today. So by the time that news hit the newspapers in the U.S., one of the headlines was, why this waste? And and they compared that to this passage, you know, and the response of the people around, why this waste? Instead of, he is worthy of, you know, our very lives. And I think Mary just has that, just that intimate knowledge with Jesus and her relationship is so close that she, she knows that. So um, I think in scripture, like sometimes you can hear the same story over and over and become a little bit numb to details. And so getting to dive in this time was really interesting to me because I've felt like I paid attention to more of the other details in the story. So, um, you know, as follows him just raising Lazarus from the dust. So this was like a, a thank you dinner kind of for Jesus, like a celebratory, like Lazarus is there. And then um, I saw where it mentioned like Simon the leper. So these people that Jesus has really like done tremendous things in their life. And so I would imagine that the spirit, the spirit of the party is very like lively but yet this is the beginning of the week of Passover and I think Jesus knows like what's coming so I was interested to see like this is probably like a very like happy and sad moment in scripture where like we're celebrating what you've done you've raised this man to life but yet this is what's coming so I thought that was that part of it really interested me that I I guess I just hadn't really pulled that out before is exactly like who was there and what exactly it followed because I think I always fast forwarded just to what Mary did and the other thing that interested me in the passage was I kind of self-identify as a Martha when I go back and look at you know Martha where she was like Mary's not helping me cook. And Jesus kindly says, Martha, Martha. Like he just tenderly corrects her for her thinking. And then again, when Lazarus dies, she runs out and she's the one that's like, had you been here, my brother would have lived. So twice she's come to him with these like kind of questions that seem a little bit impertinent. But this time it doesn't say much about her. Um, It just says Martha served. And so I imagine this time maybe she had her heart right. Martha is there serving Jesus. She's not complaining about Mary being at the feet of Jesus anymore. It was neat to see what looks like to me maybe that that Martha finally got it right. That Martha's heart is now serving or giving worship to the Lord through service, but with a, a heart that looks very different than we saw her a little while back. So to me, that was just really interesting to pull out. And like I said, it only says Martha served, but the fact that John felt like he needed to include that, and this is for posterity, like it it means that it means something. I think to me, I see something so interesting at the beginning. You see Lazarus sitting at the table. It's like death is at the table. You know, I mean, literally come back to life. 
death, resurrection. So it's foreshadowing Jesus' death in some ways, foreshadowing his resurrection, foreshadowing the life he brings. So I think that's so shocking. Like I would have been that Greek person like rolling into town for the Passover, like where's Lazarus? I need I need the facts. You know, I don't know if y'all were at the missions conference, maybe Sunday night and Yodas was talking about how Zeus was the most powerful God of the Greeks. And the one thing he couldn't do is bring people back to life. So of course, these first century Greeks were like, oh, there's a God that can bring people back to life. I want to go see this guy and hear about what he does. And maybe they didn't even believe in Jesus' deity at this point. But obviously, people are intrigued. They want to see about who is this person who calls people out of the tomb and brings people to life, back to life. And I think nobody had, well, maybe not nobody, but most people in this scene did not have on the radar, like what kind of life-giving uh, death-defying resurrection was about to be on the table. But I think, you know, he's setting it up to say there is something big about to happen, you know, just moving into that moment of the cross where his glory will be lifted high. Resurrection life will be a thing. Resurrection power will be available to all who will receive his kingship. So I think that just is powerful and just Lazarus being the picture of what is to come, um, just sitting right there in the flesh at the table, I think is shocking and breathtaking and also worshipful in its own way. Like, I do see like y'all talk about Mary and Martha and their acts of worship. So obviously the characters in this scene are important. So let's talk about how the characters in this text approached and responded to Jesus. What did their actions or words teach us about our own? Um, So I think we've kind of already talked about Mary, but I was, um, I think when I first looked at the passage, I think I and more prone to be a Judas in this scenario, the one that comes and is like, no, why would you waste all that? I think I pride myself on being very practical and um, things like that. But um, just noticing the heart behind what Judas said just had me really examining, like, when I respond like that, what am I truly thinking? Like, where is this coming from? So jokingly, my husband was calling me Judas this week as I was doing some stuff in the kitchen. I know. I was like, rude. Um, But (laughs) You know, I want to be Mary. I thought about Mary and um, and how she approached Jesus and how she took this really expensive nard and poured it on his feet and anointed him. And um, I thought about like my children and I would give anything. I think the, the valuation was like $30,000 or something is how much this was um, valued at. And I just thought, yes, I would give that any day for my child. Just thinking of like earthly relationships and what we like would not give for people we love. Mm. And then it made me think, you know, Mary did this for Jesus. Do I love Jesus that way? Am I willing to give him that much of myself? No, maybe not $30,000, but the equivalent of what would be costly to me. Mm-hmm. Something um, that would make you look foolish. Yes. Instead of practical. Yes. Like our culture says it's good to be practical. Yes. It enforces that yeah. narrative. But to be to look foolish for the sake to of love the gospel. Jesus, yeah. yeah. For loving Jesus. So um, those are two things I kind of pulled out. Agree, agree. <laughs> um, but also just thinking about the disciples, they didn't understand what was going on. And I think, you know, they still are, are not really understanding that Jesus is about to die. Even though he has said this, he's just demonstrated, you know, resurrection power with, um, with Lazarus. And that's kind of the foreshadowing. We talked about that how that's foreshadowing his own death and resurrection. But I love the part of the passage where it says the disciples didn't understand at the time what was happening after the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is what comes next in the, in the passage after this, this Passover dinner, but they didn't understand. And then later when Jesus was glorified 
it was like, oh, that's what was going on. And they remembered, then they remembered these passages. And I'm sure they remembered what Mary had done and seeing, oh, she was anointing him for his his burial. And I think that that stood out to me because it's just so sweet of the Lord, to how he's patient with us and our understanding. We may not know the the disciples didn't verbally question, you know, in here. I mean, we don't know if they did question, if they voiced that. But um, but even so, Jesus was so patient with them. And I just love that he's patient with us. Jesus doesn't say a whole lot about himself in these first 11 verses, except he acknowledges the value of, of what Mary is doing. Probably would have seemed so strange maybe in that context for Jesus to say, she's anointed me for my burial. If it was indeed a celebratory dinner and we're honoring what Jesus has done and he's brought a man back to life. And now you're saying this is a beautiful thing. She's anointing me for my burial. Just they're still not tracking with that. You know, that bringing that sadness coming into the sense of celebration of what is coming next. He says that about himself or about what's going on here. Later in the passage, he does say some things specifically about who he is and his hour and what he's come to do. So either in this passage or through the rest of chapter 12, what are some things that stood out to you about what Jesus did say about himself? And what, how did his words further challenge your belief in who he is? So he talks about, um, this is where he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And up until this point, there have been so many times where the Jews have plotted to kill him. Oh, it's not my time. It's not going to happen right yet. And so now he says the hour has come. And then he immediately begins to talk about unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So I'm sure they're not still not tracking, you know, maybe not until later. But he is foreshadowing I'm about to die. But this is why I came. This is this was my purpose. Um, my purpose is to die in order to give you eternal life. And I think about, um, and he's telling him his servants will follow this example. And if you're my servant, you're gonna you're gonna follow my example, and you're gonna lay down your life for others. And just kind of con- contrasting that with the people that are following him, that are you know waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna and looking for this king to save them from the Romans, you know, they're seeking comfort. And, and Jesus never promises us that he never promises comfort or this cushy life. Um, And I think sometimes we still miss that today, that, you know, to walk with him is to die, Mm. it's to lay down ourselves and to die. I just think that's one thing that, you know, that stood out to me that challenged me, not about who he is, but just what it means to follow him. So while you're saying that, Catherine, I'm thinking of Paul writing and saying that when we know Christ's resurrection power, that's almost hand in hand with his sufferings, like they're going to dovetail together, like we're going to walk in his power, and we're going to know his sufferings. So that's a great point. Appreciate you drawing that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just think sometimes like the they expected a triumphant king and they expected, like you said, national ease, comfort, establishment, those sorts of things. And of course, we do drift to wanting those things ourselves, but we don't recognize sometimes we do believe in a crucified savior. Like we believe in one who had to die and to suffer um, for us. Like that's, you cannot bypass that. There's no that way that we can come to God except through a sacrifice. And just that reminder sometimes to my own self, like, I'm sorry, I've come to the Lord only through 
the sacrifice. There is no other way. Not anything else I've done or said or thought or achieved or whatever. I've only come through the death of Christ. And it's just good to be reminded that when he talks about himself as the Messiah, you cannot bypass that that means he is the sacrifice. Well, and literally like right after, or maybe even in the text we're talking about, it's saying Lazarus, because he's experienced the resurrection power, now his life's in in danger. You see that playing out in the the first century church. So yeah, it's maybe the opposite of a life of comfort of ease (laughs) is what we should be expecting. But it is life. Don't yeah. you love that? Yeah, That's the promise. Truly, you will true receive life. life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not lack. Life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he doesn't say a lot about himself in the um, first eight verses, but I did appreciate how we talked about the first century church and women and their role and stuff. And so the fact that he stood up for what Mary was doing to another man, I just really appreciated that about Jesus really dignifying women and his response to Judas when Judas tried to call her out for what he did and also his response like knowing Judas was being selfish and really like knowing he didn't truly care about the poor Jesus didn't quite answer him like that but he did say that for the poor you always have them with you but you do not always have me and that just challenged me that or I interpreted it to mean like there will always be like the poor but there'll always be like kind of works that need to be done, things that need to be addressed. But I mean, they had him like right there with him and Judas was missing that. And Mary was getting it. Like she was spending time with him, worshiping him, learning from him. And the fact that in my own life, there's a lot of things that I could do and even say I'm doing them in the name of Jesus. But if I'm not spending time with him and worshiping him and learning for him and sitting at his feet, figurative like Mary did, then um then it's just really empty what I'm trying to give back to what they would have called the poor here. Jesus, again, just calling us to himself as being what we need to fuel the other things that we would do in his name. Yeah, that caught my eye, too, because obviously the Hebrew people would have known Yahweh to be a God who looks after the oppressed and the marginalized and the poor. That is prime fitting for a Jewish person. Like, we're supposed to look after those guys. That is what our ethic is about. And we are to be about those things. But Jesus is saying, he is issuing a corrective, like, no, it's better to worship the Lord. It's better to worship me. And uh, yeah, you're right to pull that out. That is very helpful to consider that our acts of good are pulled out of our worship for the Lord. I guess, Catherine, you also mentioned this, the passage about where the wheat falls, and you kind of already said this, but just, I mean, it is only through death do we know true life. And I think that um, Jesus obviously already had true life and knew about true life before he came to this earth. But he's telling us, like, only through death to yourself and walking in my way will you know what true life is about. So I think that is just, again, a, a very helpful thing. And it's not that one-time death. It is an ongoing laying aside of self, self-denial, and pursuing the Lord. So I think it's just a challenging but um, helpful passage of Scripture just to revisit. All right. So as we we're thinking about the many challenging ways that Jesus tells us about who he is and the life he calls us to lead and following him. What are the implications of this text for our lives? So I was really impressed by Mary and her response of love to what Jesus had done for her. And I love this verse where it says, when she had wiped his feet with her hair after she had poured the ointment, it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And I really thought about that as, what is my fragrance? And if I'm giving Jesus my best, my most costly 
offering, then that's going to fill the room or my home or wherever I am with a with a beautiful fragrance. So that really challenged me to think about that because so often I can just go through the motions kind of at a point in life where I don't have a lot of little people around. So serving my family looks a little bit different now. Um, And so that really challenged me because I think it's as women, we have a unique opportunity to set the tone in our homes. So I really want to think through that more and just, you know, how does my how does my worship translate into how I interact with the people around me? And also, I think if our heart is in the right place, we're not so concerned about how other people are worshiping. Mm-hmm. We're not so critical. And so I think that can also be a, a flag for me, too, that if I'm being critical about this particular part of worship or something that's going on, then maybe I need to examine my own heart and say, OK, what are you what are you focusing on? That's super helpful. I love thinking about that fragrance. And then you remember in the letters, it talks about how the aroma of Christ can be life to some and death to others. And we see that in this passage that it's life to the worshipers, it's death to Judas, like he's irritated and not loving the aroma of Christ that's there, that worship. So like Catherine said, it's challenged me to think through like, my worship of the Lord, and also how I define costly. Like, I think it's really easy to serve the Lord in some ways that it's not costly to me, or I can err towards laziness and like, say a meal plan comes out and I'm like, I just don't have time for that or whatever, when really I do, and I can make time and it it costs me time, but the Lord is worth me giving of my time to do something that ministers to one of um, his flock. And so like thinking through like, what is costly in my everyday life right now and that he is worth it and and giving being more cognizant of that and more willing to give him costly things because um, he's worthy and just also the whole heart check behind when I like for example serve others am I doing it for social media am I doing it for street cred at church because they know I signed up for this or whatever but also just a good heart check that I'm not kind of erring on the side of of Judas and doing it for my own selfish pride or selfish gain to try to be more like Mary who who gave him a costly extravagant gift what it's making me think as you say that like what what do I want out of it you know what did you just want out of what would he have done with Mary's gift Mm -hmm. you know he would have taken something for himself and you know received a you know reward maybe because Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of that passage of doing those acts of mercy and where Jesus speaks about doing your acts of mercy so that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing in other words you're, you're not focused on yourself you're focused on the one that you're serving and if you've already received your reward in full. Like there is no more for you mm-hmm. if if your motive is, you know, self-serving, self-centered, or what yeah. you're going to, pretty much in that passage, though, it's the approval of other people. Yeah. And if what you want is the approval of other people, that's what you'll get and nothing else. But that the the reward really for that giving to Christ, it, it multiplies on itself. It doesn't run dry. It doesn't leave us empty. And it's, it's natural for me to look at that passage or any of us and say, would I be willing to do what Mary did? And then I'm right back to looking at myself. And I do think that there is a, I think, you know, she, she planned to bring that vial of perfume. She wasn't just carrying that thing around, you know, on her hip, like it, that it was worth a year's worth salary. You don't just tote that thing around in your purse. She planned to bring that extravagant, like she knew what she was doing. She, she had to have counted the cost. It could have been a family heirloom. It was expensive. It's something that you take intentionally with the intention to give. She would have known that it would cost her. So I think that there's definite worth and value expressed here in 
and intentionally thinking I am willing to pay this cost. Mm -hmm. But her motive wasn't, all right, now let's think about me and what am I willing to do? That's going to be really good if I do, you know, whatever. It was Jesus is coming to dinner and what do I want to give him? And that motivation of just, I want to give something costly. And I think that's what's convicting to me of like, Lord, let me see and look like all those interactions that you see with Mary, with Jesus in, in scripture are tender and dear and protective and enriching and life-giving. And she's drawing on all of those things in order to then give what she has to give. And so that was just the the encouragement to me when I find my heart is kind of dull and I'm not looking to give and I don't want to sacrifice, it's, all right, Lord, bring into my sight again intentionally. Like I want to fix my eyes. I want to count costs. But what I want to look at is all the ways that you have proven yourself to be worthy of my worship so that then I, I'm motivated by what I see in you and not by whether or not I can get my act together when it comes to worship. Oh, that's good. I love thinking about all the ways that I've known his mercy and um, experienced his goodness and his love. And that is what draws us into worship. Catherine and Sarah, thank you for both joining us today. Listeners, we hope you will join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you're walking your dog or driving to work. Josh and Betsy Lane will be joining us next week to talk about John 15 and what it is to abide in Christ. Hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees It is the Lord who rises With healing in His wings When comforts are declining He grants the soul again A season of clear shining To cheer it after the rain